Hi, I am Mohan Surf. I'm a professor of neuroscience and business. I teach at the Kellogg School of Management in Chicago, and I study the brain and try to help companies implement my knowledge of the brain in their businesses. Today, we're going to talk about dreams, about consciousness, about deja vu, AI, how neuroscience can help your business, about death, about brain mapping, science fiction, and about meaning. Welcome back. This episode is brought to you by the Awesome Music Project, bringing music, story, and mental health together. All proceeds from the Awesome Music Project campaign go to uh, music health uh, mental health research initiatives. Uh, you can find out more about the beautiful uh, Awesome Music Project coffee table book in the usual places. The book features stories from amazing folks like astronaut Chris Hadfield, uh, award-winning artists like Michael Bublé, Sarah McLaughlin, and even a, a, the occasional clown right in there, some guy called Dov Baron or something. Uh, for more on the Awesome Music Project or the AMP Foundation, you can go to theawesomemusicproject.com. All right, welcome back to part two of my delicious conversation with Professor Moran Surf. Uh, he is a professor of neuroscience and business. He's been cited in the uh, 40 best professors under 40. Uh, that was a couple of years ago. He has published over 60 academic papers in esteemed journals like uh, Nature, uh, the Journal for Neuroscience, and way more. He's portrayed in popular uh, media outlets such as Wired, Scientific America, BBC, CNN. There's a whole lot more. So, ladies and gentlemen, welcome back, our guest, <laughs> Professor Moran Surf. And where we finished off last time was we started to talk about this idea of reality versus the story we tell ourselves. And what we were saying was, we kind of operate in this, in this, we have a narrative, we have a story we tell ourselves that becomes our reality. Once it becomes our reality, then we reinforce it by making it our story. And where we were talking about just at the end of the last show was, all right, so what is our reality versus the narrative we constantly telling ourselves? So I'm going to hand that over to you. Okay, so there are a lot to unpack here. Yeah. What is our reality is one question. <laughs> what is the story? So uh, here's a, I think our brain needs a story constantly. If, if I were to kind of guess what consciousness is, I would say it's a mechanism in our brain that weaves memories into a narrative to try to predict the future. So basically what, what we need to do in order to survive is know what's ahead and be ready for that. The best way to do that is to look at the past and try to draw inferences from what happened before, kind of a little bit of what happens right now and what could be the the, 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 the kind of the part we're going to play in the future. So our brain makes it easy to remember all the memories by coming up with a story. It says, I ate a bowl of cereal. I met with my friend. I uh, had this conversation. I, and instead of just memorying of episodes kind of existing out there, it was mm -hmm. a story. This led to this, and this was the uh, contrary event. This made us change to, and once we have a story, it's easier for us to kind of hand, hand the answer to the question, who am I? And that's yes. the first part, and I'll give you a second part and a little quick so we can decide what to dive into. Sure. Independent of that, there's another big question which kind of comes from what you opened with, which is our reality in itself 
is a perceptual experience of a limit of what's out there. Here is what it is in uh, plain words. We see with our eyes what we think is around us. And we say, okay, there's a library behind me. There's a computer screen in front of me. There's lighting. There's a lot of things here. That's only part of what's out there. Our mm -hmm. eyes can only see one ten trillionth of the rays of light that's around us. There are gamma yes. rays and x-rays and radiators. None of that is captured by our brain. So we see only part of the world and our brain calls this reality. So what we experience is only a limit version of what's out there. And we think it's the whole world. And that means that we make mistakes on our perception. Yeah, well, I mean, even as Ospensky said, um, if you imagine a two-dimensional creature living at the bottom of a lake mm -hmm. um, and you're swimming in the lake, you, you dive in to swim in the lake and Ospensky asks, what does the creature see? And the answer is it sees only your outline yeah. because it's not a three-dimensional creature. So if you're a three-dimensional creature living in a, in a 10-dimensional universe, what do you see versus what's really there? So, you know, it, you know conscious, oh, the pursuit of consciousness, which is my addiction, <laughs> um, is, is, in, is in really understanding that I am perceptually blind in many, many ways. And therefore, if I'm perceptually blind, I can never have all the information I would need to make sense of it, whatever it is. So we're all kind of, it seems like in many ways, we're all kind of fumbling around in the dark and we might be judgmental or critical of other people who seem to be more fumbling than we are, but out of that fumbling, we go, oh, that's what this is. And it's the, the old story of the elephant and five blind men, right? Oh, the elephant is the tail and it's the trunk. No, it's the trunk, you know? I think that if your audience takes what you just said from this entire session, this would be a success because I think that we consciously can tell ourselves, yeah, reality is limited. What we experience is only what we make up in our mind and so on, but we tend to forget that right away. So when someone says something bad to us, we don't really say, oh, there were acoustic sounds coming into my ear and this in my mind turned into a story and I decided that I'm going to be insulted and this wasn't kind of what happened. What happened was just sound was created and I made meaning. We know it kind of when we go to therapy, we talk about that. And then when we leave, we immediately forget that. And like when someone says something nasty to us, we respond the same way. So I think if someone can ponder for a second on that sentence and say, yeah, reality is a proposal and our brain makes it into a meaning, they take a lot from this session. Yeah, it, 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 it's, I, I love what you said there because it, it challenges us to really grasp if something is, I mean, the, the, the bottom line is that something is real if it's real to you. That's always been my argument to people. So that's why I like the whole idea of VR and you know uh, AI and all those kinds of things. But something is only real if it's real to you. And the analogy I've given many times is, um, you know, and right now as we are sort of in the, the pandemic world that we live in, you know, we've got people who really don't believe there's a pandemic. And then we've got people who really believe there's a pandemic. And we've got people who say it's manufactured by China and people are saying, oh, no, it's the it's the dark forces of the planet, the deep state, and they're all doing it. Uh, and I, you know, and, and 
often people go, are these people stupid? And I'm going like, no, they're not stupid. But they seem really dumb. I mean, they're saying dumb things. No, because they, just so you understand, they think you're dumb. They tell you, they say, wake up, you're behaving like a sheep by putting on a mask. And you're going, I, I hold on a second, it's a science. On that, I would also defend those people. So I, I too, open clearly believe <laughs> that there is a pandemic. I, I, I work tirelessly to end it. And I spend a lot of time thinking, talking to people who do great work in like uh, understanding it. At the same time, when I am asked occasionally to speak to someone who really sits on the other side, who doesn't want to wear a mask, or doesn't want to take a vaccine, or, or I, I really try to understand. And I recognize how hard it is to do that if you don't come from a mental state that is accepting that. Like someone tells you what the virus says, they're so hard to understand. They're not living animals. They're just like a piece of DNA. Uh, they have no intention, motivation. Like yet everyone talks about them as if the virus wanted this or the virus was going after that. So we, we really anthropomorphize the kind of the world of viruses and making it very, very hard for a person who doesn't believe to kind of make the sleep. So I think that it's on us as well to find a way to reach those who, you know, those who live in a different kind of reality and and, uh, and don't have a way out by themselves. It's like, I, I, you know, I, I, in, I, a lot of my kind of uh, uh, students ask me whether they should go to therapy. They say, you know, I'm thinking about this, should I go to therapy? And, and I have a story that I tell them it will take two minutes, so bear with me. Uh, but I think it's relevant to, to a lot of people. And in that sense, I tell them the story of a book that I used to read when I was a kid called The, the Story or the Tales of the Count Munchausen. And it tells the story of Baron this, von uh, Munchausen? Yeah, it, 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 the, the disorder is named after him because the point of the of book is that he keeps telling lies and tales and uh, no one, nothing is true. And the kid who kind of reads this book is supposed to figure out what's the lie. Like the kind of the story, how he was riding on a, he was firing a cannonball and he rode on the cannonball and that's how he got to France. And all of those things are not true. And the kid's supposed to say, no, you cannot do that. And that's how, that's kind of a, the point of the story. There's one, a, a, kind of chapter in the in the book where he describes riding his horse in the swamps in the deadly swamps where everyone says if you're gonna go there you're gonna submerge and die and he gets to a swamp and indeed what happens is that the horse is already kind of fully underwater and he kind of doesn't know what to do he kind of tries to do something but he keeps sinking and then he has this brilliant idea he unties his shoelaces and he pulls himself and the horse from the shoelaces, and that's how he gets out. And the kid's supposed to say, this is impossible. You can't do that. Like, you can't pull yourself from your hair outside of the swamp. And that's kind of, that's actually where the term bootstrapping came from, from this book. Really? Like putting yourself. And what I tell people when I, when I talk, tell, I'll tell my students when they're asking about therapy about this chapter, and I tell them in a little bit more detail the story. But then I say, the point is that when you're in the deadly swamp and you're kind of starting to sink, it's not that you need someone to come and pull you out. You can pull yourself out, but you need to have a branch that's not in the swamp. So you need to hold on to a branch of a tree that's not sinking, and then you can pull yourself out. So the role of a therapist isn't to uh, send you like a, you know, be a lifeguard who kind of pulls you out. They're just supposed to be not sinking with you, and then they can provide perspective. And in that sense, I think that our job as people who are not in the same kind of conspiracy theory is not to tell people, no, I'm going to educate you and I'm going to fix you. We just need to be there 
and give information so the person can pull themselves out. Like we're gonna give you more information and you're gonna realize that there are viruses and this is how they work and so on. We don't need to kind of convince you and hammer into you by hating you, just provide information and be there when someone wants to ask the question, the tools will prevail. People will find meaning and they will get themselves out of the conspiracy by themselves. Oh, I'm gonna push back a bit on that. I'm not sure that's true. You, you want to in, be in looking at that. No, um, because um, at an egoic level, um, the truth is irrelevant. What's relevant is my emotional at attachment to my belief. So in fact, if you inform a person more, this is why I don't believe education is the answer. People talk about that all the time. I, no, education is not the answer because some people will take that education and twist it into um, the reality they hold. So I would say, um, you know, and I'm somebody who was trained in, as a therapist years ago and practice therapy, um, that it is the curiosity. It's why this show is called what it is. It's the curiosity more than the knowledge, because coming back to where we started here, which is that nothing's real until it's real. And people say, well, what do you mean by that? Uh, and the example I will give is uh, the Republican uh, Southern Baptist uh, Congressman, uh, Senate person who is against um, uh, uh, transgender people and thinks it's a crime and an abomination, it's Leviticus, you know, whatever it is, right? And they're throwing all that stuff out there and it's wrong and it's against God and these people are evil, you know, uh, and then suddenly, you know, there's no sense to this whatsoever. doesn't make any sense. And they'll argue up the yin yang and you can tell them, well, listen, here's the science and here's the, here's the facts of it. And here's the, they don't care. Right. I'm falling back onto the Bible. They'll tell you that I'm falling back on the Bible, the word of God, the word of Jesus, whatever it might be. And I go, okay, cool. Now it's five years into the future. And you just found out that your son is transgender. How do you feel about it now? Well, I, I've evolved, hmm. right? No, you haven't. It's become real. It's not evolved. You, it's become real because it becomes real at emotional level. When you have that emotional connection, you can open up. So our deal is to be curious with people so that they can ask the question, so that they can then elicit the information as opposed to providing the information, which I often find shuts people down. And I know that I used to throw information at people all the time, and they basically tell me to go away, <laughs> go forth and multiply uh, versus being open. So for me, it's that curiosity to give somebody an opportunity to step in to the emotional reality of it being real for them. What's your thoughts? I agree 100%. So I, I think that I think what I should clarify is I agree 100% that information is not the answer for most problems. Uh, you know, I work with companies, uh, you know, that, that uh, they, they have the best battery out there in terms of lifetime. Yeah. That's that's it's a made up example. And they are still not the ones that everyone buy and they cost the same and no one buys and say, oh, we just need to educate everyone that our battery is better. And it's never working. Like they kind of no. go and they tell you, I, I think people need to find an angle to, to, get into the person's psyche without like and information is not the way like everyone uh, a lot of people try to uh, lose weight we know what you need in order to lose weight you need to eat healthy and exercise more that's about it basically those so, two things if you do that, you're gonna lose weight 
all the information you need is there. This is it. I gave you all the information. So why isn't everyone losing weight? Well, because it's really hard. Like it's not just knowing that you need to not eat the cake. It's actually being there and not uh, controlling the, the mechanism that wants to eat the cake. And I think in that sense, I think information is not the answer. It's not anti-answer. It's not that it's no. bad to give information, no, but no. it's usually not helpful. Uh, and I, I think what needs to happen is experience. And I, in that sense, I think you're right. Like it's either an emotional experience or traumatic experience that forms an emotion or a, a kind of interactions with people that expose you to things that you were not aware of. And in that sense, I think that, you know, a, there's a quote by, a, a, I think it was President Obama, but maybe I'm wrong, who said, if you're tired of hugging people on the internet, try meeting one in person. I think that's the best way to actually change people's minds. Like you, on the internet, you argue and it's just information being kind of sent. Yeah. Right? But if you meet one of the people, suddenly you say, oh, you have also a son who's uh, uh, annoying you when they don't do their homework. I have one. Uh, like, forget for a second that you're a Southern Baptist, uh, this and I, I'm a, you know, the, the, a gay transgender. Like kind of, uh, we, we actually share some things and I think those things yeah. work. I agree. Uh, yeah, it's definitely... I mean, so, you know, we're, we're still in this section here about reality and, and that section, section about what we see as reality versus what is reality. So, you know, Descartes said, uh, I think, therefore I am. And I've always said, I don't believe that. I don't, I don't, I don't think that's true based on my research. I think it's we, I feel, therefore I am. Uh, when I have an emotional content in something, in an experience, that's where I then place my identity. So if I'm traumatized as a child, I will um, have an emotional response to that, which may create a polar uh, experience. So meaning if I'm beaten as a child, I might have an emotional connection to that, which will pretty linearly create a, a, a one or the other response, which is I might also become a violent individual um, or I become the most loving, peaceful person and will never go to violence. And they're not, and I, and personally for me, I don't think those are choices. Those are reactions. They're not truths, they're reactions. So for instance, quick story, many years ago, I went to see a therapist, um, because I went, Hmm, I need to go see a, uh, a feminist therapist. Cause I want to find out if I've got any shit going on with women um, because I wasn't doing so great in my relationships. So I decided purposefully to go to a feminist. And she said to me, <clears throat> are you monogamous? And I said, oh, yes. And she goes, oh, that's very certain. What do you mean? I, I said, well, of course I'm. And she goes, why, of course? Hmm. And I said, because I am. And she said, well, tell me about what monogamy is. I said, oh, listen, if anybody's monogamous, it's me. And she goes, well, tell me why. I said, if I go out on a date with a, uh, on a coffee date with a girl on Monday and I meet her and I like her, and I think I'm, you know, I might ask her to come for coffee again on the following week, but I've got another date, another coffee date ver ver um, set up with another girl for Thursday, I will cancel the second coffee the coffee date with the other girl because i feel like i'm cheating on the first girl who doesn't even know we're dating she goes you're not monogamous i said what do you mean i'm not monogamous she goes you're not monogamous i said i am i just explained to you she goes no you're not she says monogamy it, monogamy is a choice and this isn't a choice and i said of course it's a choice and i said what do you mean she says you told me about your father. Tell me more about your dad. So I told him about my dad. And, and, and I said, well, as I told you, my dad would 
using an English term, he would have screwed the crack of dawn if he could get up early enough, right? So, <laughs> you know, my dad was screwing everything and my stepdad made my dad look like an amateur. So, you know, they were banging everything in sight. So I was not monogamous by choice. I was monogamous by reaction. I, I, it was not a choice. It was, I don't want to be like them. So I'll be like this. That's not a choice. And I had to stop and come to terms with, is this true or is it a condition? And so I will tell you that today I'm monogamous in this moment. So monogamy is now a choice I make in a moment to moment basis. And I had that agreement with my wife. We both agree. You can sleep with anybody you want. The consequence is that that's the end of the marriage, but that is a choice that you need to make as opposed to a reactive response, which I think that most of us are holding on to as identity. So our reality is this story we tell ourselves. The story we tell ourselves becomes our reality. The reality is based on a set of ch quote choices that are not really choices. And I know that that's a lovely area for you choices, uh, which are not really choices, but are actually reactions and oftentimes are polar reactions to a um, uh, an intrinsic moment, some moment that catalyzed that thing. And we think it's free will and we think it's our identity. And I'm like, no, that's not your identity. It's not free will. You've never even considered that. And again, back to the pattern thing. Can you not see that the reason you canceled the coffee is because your dad was banging everything in sight? Oh, never thought of that. I think I have a friend who's a couple therapist and she has a sentence that kind of speaks that says, uh, people tell me that they're monogamous in all the relationships. I think you know that's uh, in all the relationships. That's like, a, she says this, she, she speaks about her, her like a- I'm monogamous with my mistress and my wife. Yeah, and I, and I think that the, in that sense, uh, you know, it's already a change, right? Like the fact that our generation has more than my relationships in our life, like that you were married once and you married twice and like you have a, a that, that's already a big shift from what our parents actually had or their grand their parents like it was it was one and you know you you marry when you're 20 and that's it like you hope the other person dies first that's about yeah. it yeah uh, now we we kind of break life into mini stories and we pick character in every story that, that you know that's interesting what you just said there because it's kind of like i mean you know i hopefully we'll get some time to talk about you teaching screen screenwriting and of course you understand narrative but it's very interesting to me that you know this show, you and I, right now, um, it's broken into half-hour sections. Why is it broken into half-hour sections? When it's not really half-hour sections, it's a two-hour show. Because you can't deliver a two-hour show to people. They don't have that capacity anymore, right? You know, um, there were three-hour movies. Now there's not many three-hour movies. They're pretty rare. And if they are, people are like, cut it down, man. Right. Uh, and now we're all looking, you know, I do videos online and my, the people who guide me are like, Dove, it was five minutes. You got to bring it to three. Uh, Dove, it was three minutes. You got to bring it to one, you know? And, and it's interesting because of what you just said, we're kind of doing that with life and our relationships, aren't we? We're like, it's a shorter story. It's not a I life story so. anymore. 
yeah i mean i i think that people you know you asked me about my life and i broke it into section i told you this is my era of this this is my era of this i kind of broke it to eras i did probably more than one thing in this five-year period but it's kind of easy for me to give it a label and call it the era and in that sense i think we we apply the same thinking to a lot of events of our life like you know in the calendar we have one thing in every like section we say this is my answering emails moment and this is my talking to my friends and this like we kind of break it as, as if like as if life is set of segmented labels. and never overlapping <laughs> yeah and, and our mind doesn't work like this our mind constantly while we answer email we see the connection to our friend's conversation and the email is is going to be part of the question afterward like we're going to say oh i got this email and it's it's all kind of integrated and we don't really and in that sense i think that uh, we created a world that only amplifies that rather than minimizes that i think that uh, you know from a little work in hollywood i can tell you that uh, if you compare movies 2000 to movies 50 years earlier, the number of cuts grew by order of magnitude. It used to be long shots of like 30 seconds where you see Hitchcock's kind of characters walking into the room with, and now it's like cut, 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 cut. Like when a person goes into a room, you see him or her in like five angles as like the door opening, the hand gripping the handle, they enter from the other side, they walk far away, long shots. Like this is like the same scene, but now in five different cameras. And it's not surprising when I mean, we have research right now on, on just this thing that uh, YouTube has a five second ad right now before you can skip them. And they basically ask the creative agencies to come up with something that you can sell in five seconds. That's, that's, the, that's the kind of the, the bite that uh, people are asked to create. Have you done any research into that attention span stuff? We have kind of two types of research. One that just looks at kind of how, what is that to the brain? Like what happens to your brain when you segment or fragment life to that? That's one. And we have, that's kind of me trying to understand the brain. And on the other side, we try to help companies essentially by studying uh, engagement. So we look at uh, content. So we, we bring, let's say our show right now as content and we feed that into uh, many, many people's brains. So we look at you know, 30 people who watch the same uh, content while we scan their brain. We try to see how similar their brains are. Mm. And the more similar their brains are, the better the content. So we give feedback to Dov and Moran, telling them, look, you guys in two hours of talking could make hundreds of brains around the world, different ages, different locations, and so on, all sync up meaning your content was so compelling that everyone while you were talking was seeing the same thing, was thinking the same thing. And they were for a while not in their minds working about what they should buy and uh, what, who they should talk to and so on. They were in it with you. So how similar the brains are is a metric of how good the content is, is, is what we do in the work where we try to help companies make better content. So in that, um, I know there's some really phenomenal research into neurosyncing and, and, you know, getting, brains to sync with each other um you know the the uh the idea that women's menstrual cycles will sync um but in fact at a resonance level the frequency modulation of the resonance of, of a of the way that we think and and how the brain is operating can also come into sync and we know that because of things like mirror neurons right mm -hmm. those yeah. kinds of things are pretty fascinating um <clears throat> and, and you know and i I find that area particularly phenomenal because of I'm very fascinated by narrative like you. And, you know, the, I've always said to people, you know, I used to, in one of my workshops, I used to say, I want you to imagine that we've gone to the movies and they go, okay. And you're sitting watching a movie. Think about whatever movie it is you decide you're watching. 
and it's one of your favorite movies and it's one of your favorite movies but it always evokes a lot of emotion in you could be anger could be could be sadness could be laughter could be, you know it's very emotional you what is it and, and they'll tell me the movie and i'll say what is the scene and they tell me the scene and i say okay now let, let's just stop for a moment and let me ask you this where are you and they go all right in the at that time yeah you're in the cinema right yeah oh okay i'm in the cinema i'm in the seat okay good what are you doing well i'm looking at the screen uh-huh you understand it's a screen right yeah do you understand that it's lights on a screen that are moving across the screen at a certain frequency that there's no people there there's no emotion there there's nothing there apart from lights that you're perceiving which is really a fraction of reality and it's not even a three-dimensional reality and it's certainly not an emotional reality so why does it emotionally connect with you hmm doesn't make any logical sense does it and they'll always say no good that's how life works it doesn't make any logical sense there is logic to it definitely but things don't make um, logical sense the way we operate in the world is actually in an emotional reality and what i what i call emotional logic and you have to understand that in emotional logic so in rational logic two plus two equals what four great in emotional logic two plus two equals a chair a giraffe rage sadness i don't and they go well which one is it i don't know because it's subjective it's whatever it is for you and not only is it whatever it is for you it's whatever it is for you in um a generalized way but also in a specific way so two plus two equals generally anger okay but in this situation it equals horny. <laughs> but you got to have the right situation. So that's what's fascinating about human beings. So when you're doing the work that you're doing, do you, are you doing a lot of the research around not just thoughts, but emotional triggers that fire off thoughts? So when we work with companies, that, that's a great question. What, what we're trying to do basically is overcome that. So what, what the companies want, they're making an ad for the Super Bowl in february and they are gonna pay i don't know 10 million dollars for uh, five 50 seconds uh, or 30 seconds ad on tv they have one shot and they want as many people to then kind of connect with that so they come to me and they say help us moan find the thing that's going to be the most kind of powerful in connecting everyone we want we want to control in a way the two plus two equals rage as much as we can now it's not going to work like there are going to be people who are going to uh, Two plus two will equal horny for them, and two, some of the two plus two is gonna uh, equal laughter. Can you find us a way to get as many people as possible to think that two plus two equals anger? And what we do is just that. We basically try to bring a lot of people that have different opinions and study their brains and see uh, whether you know putting the two plus two in a bigger font. And I'm using your analogy or uh, sure. uh, saying two plus two is not two plus three, but two plus two, and like kind of negating like all kinds of ways to get as many people as possible to think the same. I think that uh, sometimes we do a good job, as in we really are able to kind of find out what is it that makes you either go with us or go totally the opposite. And many times we fail because it's so hard because people are in that sense, very kind of idiosyncratic. They all have their own way of seeing the same story. And it's Im nearly impossible to kind of make a person who sees a different story align with yours 
Fascinating. That's a great place for us to finish this, this section of the show. Uh, we're going to come back in part three. We're going to take this a little bit further. We're going to look at brain mapping. I want to want to look at how the how how that has progressed in the understanding of how we map the brain and what that means in the context of consciousness, uh, the dream state, uh, and all those kinds of things, which is, is a fascinating area. I hope that you're enjoying this episode of Curiosity Bites with my fabulous guests. Fabulous, delicious episode of Curiosity Bites with Professor Moran Surf. And we'll be back for part three. So stay curious, my friends. Stay curious. Mm -hmm.